Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. The failure of Silicon Valley Bank has sent shockwaves across the country and throughout the markets. Not since the financial crisis nearly 15 years ago has the banking system faced this level of vulnerability, according to many. On March 10th, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, took over the bank, which had been the 16th largest in the country. A day later, Signature Bank was also put under government control, making it the third largest bank failure in U.S. history. How did we get here? Is there a comparison between recent events and the great financial crisis? Have regulations worked? My guest this week is Sheila Baer. She served as chair of the FDIC from 2006 to 2011 and was at the center of government decision-making throughout the financial crisis. She is also author of the children's book series, Money Tales, which provides financial literacy lessons to children. Sheila Bear, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you've been busy. Yeah. <laughs> trying to explain all of this to a lot of folks. We're right. recording this uh, on Wednesday, March 15th, and maybe some things will happen between now and when this drops. But for now, let's first focus on the cause of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Right. Everyone understands that there was a bank run. Was that bank run caused by a rollback of certain regulation, bad investment decisions by the bank, unreasonable panic by depositors, all of the above? Or something else. Yeah. Well, uh, I would like to just comment on one thing you said in your introduction about this being yeah. the second largest failure. Uh, we had too big to fail, so-called too big to fail institutions did fail during the great financial crisis. We bailed them out. I'm, I'm sorry, but it's a little bit of a uh, issue with me because uh, you know an institution like Citigroup got poor bailouts, and and then to say they didn't fail is is <laughs> is, not, is not how I would describe it. So. Thank you for indulging me in that clarification. But I think it's important, too, because to put this in larger context, I mean, a multi-trillion dollar bank failing, uh, they should be allowed to fail, too. And I thought we fixed that during Dodd-Frank. But certainly a $200 billion bank and a $23 trillion banking industry should be able to fail uh, without bailouts and without uh, broader system-wide instability. So I guess- But when when you say bailout, are you drawing a distinction between the bailing out of depositors and the bailing out of shareholders and others? So I am defining bailout as any special breaks, any deviation from the rules and special benefits that a failing institution gets. So we, as every school child knows, has gone into a bank and seen a bank teller window. FDIC insurance is capped at $250,000. 
Silicon Valley Bank and its very rich depositors got a break from that rule. They didn't have to take a haircut on their uninsured deposits, even though it probably would have been not uh, very significant. They came and lobbied and got full protection from the government using a systemic risk designation, which is an extraordinary measure, which should only be used if there's truly system-wide peril by not doing these special exceptions, aka bailouts. So they got a special break from the rules. They got a break that you know, a regular household every day, yeah. a depositor who might have been at a community bank that failed, and they had more than 250, they would have taken losses. But the depositors, mostly very wealthy depositors at this at this bank, poorly run bank, uh, did not. So I, I do think that's important to understand. Yeah, no, absolutely. But let me ask you further about that. Then we'll go back to the causes. Sure. Wasn't part of the reason for the bailout of the depositors, and tell me if this is off base, a concern about massive contagion and that those other community banks you're talking about that didn't get special treatment were also going to see runs? Yeah, I, I guess. Uh, well, that wasn't articulated. But I guess it gets back to my point. So we've been told repeatedly by the government over the years since Dodd-Frank that this is a safe, resilient banking system. If this banking system cannot withstand the failure of a $200 billion bank and some 10% haircut on their very wealthy uninsured depositors, if this system can't even withstand that, then this is not a safe, resilient banking system. I think the well, that may be true. Well, but that's <laughs> but then you send signals like that and people start to panic. I think the banking system is is basically sound. I think regional banks and mid-sized banks are basically sound. But you create this yeah, you know, the systemic risk exception to, as a rationale to bail out very rich uninsured depositors. I think I think you set off alarm bells for people and, and I I don't think that's right. To flush that out a little bit. You know, you're a very sophisticated person who ran the FDIC for a number of years. I talked to sophisticated people in the private sector, including clients and others over the, the prior weekend, who did not believe and were not led to believe that they were only going to take a 10% haircut. If it had been clear to them with absolute certainty that it would be a 10% haircut, it might have been different. But I heard not a manufactured, but genuine panic in the voices of people, You know, some, some of them well-to-do, who were really concerned about losing everything they had in Silicon Valley Bank and other banks that are like Silicon Valley Bank. And, and so I, I don't know what that says about the banking system. And these are not mom and pop folks. These, these, are, these are real people who invest and have engaged in entrepreneurship, and they thought they might lose everything. Was that unreasonable? I think what you're saying reflects kind of the, the attitude, uh, which is unfortunate because the mom and pop people, if this had been a bank that truly catered, catered to mom and pop businesses, I would have felt better about it, <laughs> but this is, I still don't think it was be, would justify because I don't think it was systemic, but these are very wealthy people. I mean, it's a who's who list of venture capitalists and very large tech companies. There may have been a few small startups, but the, the FDIC announced they were going to pay a dividend this week. There were a lot of analysts over the weekend disseminating analysis saying the haircut would probably be around 10%. They're actually, you know, private sector participants setting up markets to go ahead and buy the uninsured claims to be able to immediately monetize uh, the uninsured claims. So the market was, there was market analysis out there. Well, you know, I just look, we can, uh, boy, did I hear this during the crisis. It was a black hole over the weekend. I, I guess that weekend after the Friday when Silicon Valley Bank was shut down, I, I just, as I was saying before, there was a widespread panic. And so my question to you is, if the government had done nothing, and there's an argument for them doing nothing, 
What do you think the week would have looked like? The government needed to do an orderly resolution on this. I think if the FDIC had done what it originally said it was going to do, which is take control over the weekend, pay a dividend, it would have been at least, so I think we need to clarify, there's usually an initial advance that's paid on uninsured deposits. That would have been at least 50%, probably significantly more. When IndyMac Bank failed, when I was chair, we paid a 50% dividend on that bank. And that was a way worse bank than, than Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley was actually had a pretty good book of assets. So I'm guessing they would have gotten a 60 or 70% advanced dividend and eventually probably would have recovered almost all of their uninsured. And surely that would have been enough. And thank you for acknowledging this is all anecdotal because I've never seen, I'd like to see their depositor base and how many small startups were really in there with transaction accounts that needed access to their payroll. That's the kind of thing that I think the public uh, needs to understand. But to the extent there were, they would have had an advanced dividend, which is what the FDI announced it was going to do. I think over the weekend, the FDIC became came under tremendous pressure under the guise of systemic risk. Because, boy, did we hear that constantly for the Wall Street bailout, systemic risk, systemic risk. A lot of influential people, the elites you're talking to, coming in and saying, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, we can't lose our money. We're important to the economy. You've got to save us. And so Sunday night, they did this. I, I don't agree with that. I, I sympathize with them. I know they're under a lot of pressure. I know exactly where they were. I was getting the same thing uh, uh, during the financial crisis. But no, I don't think these were systemic. I think it sets a very bad precedent. It's, it sets expectations for future bailouts about insured deposits, which frankly, they're not equipped to do. If every single failure, they're going to have to make a systemic risk designation. They're setting up an expectation they may not be able to deliver on. Because systemic risk determinations are meant to be extraordinary. Supermajorities of the Fed, the FDIC, the Treasury Secretary, the President. And are they going to do that for community banks? And, and if they have a community bank failure and they hear cut the uninsured depositors, what's that going to do the uninsured deposits of the community banks? They're going to be, they're going to be running too. So I, I think the dynamic <laughs> is, is such that you, know, we can, you can say it calmed uh, the markets. I don't think it did. I think some of the regional banks are unjustifiably under deposit uh, withdrawal pressure. It's, it, it could spread. There is a, an expedited procedure for the FDIC to go and get congressional approval to do provide a guarantee for all uninsured deposits and transaction accounts, which is something they might want to consider. But doing these one-off bailouts, and, and let's just let's just take your point and assume that Preet, you're right. That, okay, this is systemic, and they had to do this. The fact is, the perception is, is this is a bailout of a lot of rich depositors, and it was a bailout of a lot, you know, and so the, the question is, well, you know, what was the real motivation here? If you're going to do bailouts, do it for everybody, because, you know, you do this one-off special treatment, inevitably, the public's going to perceive what's going on, you know, you're bailing them out, you may not bail out others, so there is a process to, to, to uh, assess a fee, charge for it. And provide some blanket coverage, at least for the transaction accounts, which would be where the uh, the payroll accounts would be. And there's a streamlined procedure for Congress to do that. So I think if there's a if there is a broad based problem, that's what they should do. Not pick and choose who we're going to bail out now, and and they may not even be able to with further systemic risk exceptions. So so that would be my preference. Right now, the fear is a thing that we have to fear, and if people start irrationally pulling their uninsured or even insured deposits out because uh, you know they're they're worried about the stability of the banking system, then we do have a real problem. That is a systemic risk. Let's go back and talk about the causes. Is one cause irrational panic and withdrawals on the part of elite depositors at Silicon Valley Bank? 
Uh, well, I, that, that's certainly it was a classic run on the bank on, on Thursday and Friday. Right. Yeah, it was a classic run. I think it, from what I've been able to read, and I just have access to public information. They had a plan uh, to recapitalize, and if if people had kept their heads and left their deposits in there, I think they probably could have avoided failure. But yeah, this is a classic bank run, um, and that's that's definitely what brought it down. There, they couldn't raise money fast enough to pay off the depositors, and then, of course, they were having to sell securities that were in what's called a hold to maturity portfolio uh, that where they assumed they would be able to hold them to maturity. And if they had been able to do that, they would have been fine. But the because of rising interest rates, these securities had lost market value. And then when they had to sell them to meet deposit withdrawals, that's what really created problems. Is it appropriate to find fault with that investment decision? Oh, yeah. Well, I think, one, the, it was a bad investment decision. And two, they didn't hedge their interest rate risk. So th- they shouldn't have piled into those longer dated, low yielding instruments. Uh, but if they were going, especially, I mean, <laughs> the Fed was going to be raising interest rates, that wasn't hard to figure out. But if they did, they should have uh, hedged their interest rate risk, which they apparently didn't do or didn't do very effectively. So yeah, that, that was definitely mismanagement on the bank's part. You have been vocal about interest rate hikes. What's the relevance of interest rate hikes to this? So it's a good question for you because I think people need to understand. So we also, you know, look, basic rule, interest rates go down, the value of financial assets go up, especially bonds, because those higher yielding bonds are now worth more as the Fed lowers rates. So the new stuff is is, is having a, a, a lower rate than the previously issued higher rate ones. Then, and we saw all that, you know, we saw booming bond markets and, and booming stock markets too. That's a little different dynamic. But the general rule is you, you lower interest rates, financial assets go up in value. Then when you raise rates, financial assets go down in value. And for bonds, that is that is true because now you've bought bonds in a more recent bonds in a lower interest rate environment, and they have lower yields than what you can get now on a newly issued bond because the Fed has been raising rates. So they lose market value. If you had to sell them into the market before they matured, if you can wait until the bond matures and you just redeem it for the full face value of of the instrument, but if you have to sell it before maturity, then you are going to take losses and because they've lost market value because, again, the interest rate on those bonds is lower than what you can get today with the higher rates. Aren't we always at risk of bank runs in a variety of circumstances because, as you have said, human beings are human beings? Well. No, I, I think, again, that making a systemic risk determination for these small banks was dissettling to the market in and of itself. I think characterizing this for what it was, which I think is it was an unusual situation, and having an orderly resolution, paying the advance dividend, I think, frankly, that would have been a better signal to the markets than what they did. Again, because they've set up an expectation of uninsured bailouts in the future they can't necessarily deliver on unless they go to Congress and ask for approval to do a, a blanket program. So uh, I do think it could it could and should have been handled differently. If, if we're saying that, so but let me just ask you, so Uh-oh. you say, you know, if you, <laughs> you th- okay, well, no, but I, I think, let me, let me challenge you to, to just think this through for me with a minute. What, what would be the new benchmark for uninsured? Do you want all uninsured to be protected? So a $500 million community bank, if it fails, should we protect those uninsured deposits? That's actually what I was, I was going to ask you next, and we can talk about it together. So the, cur- the current threshold, it used to be for, for years and years when I was growing up, it was $100,000 insured. Right, and, right. And then it was now it's $250,000. What's the level between 250000 and unlimited that is plausible and realistic that would help you know, a, a large proportion of people, but not the richest. 
it's important to understand that there are already ways to get hundreds of millions of dollars of insured deposits. And again, getting back to these sophisticated Silicon Valley depositors, it's not clear to me they, they used all the tools that were available. So there is an organization called Interfi, for instance. So they, they have a switch, basically. If you have uninsured money in a bank, they'll break that up for you in 250,000 components and send it out to a lot of other banks. So each of those accounts are insured. And it, you can get a lot of coverage uh, that way. There are also sweep accounts into government money market funds. And some of the uh, depositors did that at SVB. So there are ways to protect, already ways to protect your money. So when we say the 250000 cap, it sounds for very rich people and large businesses, it sounds small. But there are already a lot of ways now uh, to get significantly more coverage. I, as I said before, I think, so I think, believe Japan has unlimited deposit insurance for transaction accounts. I think there's at least a case for a temporary guarantee of all uninsured deposits in transaction accounts. Now, these are the ones that are used for operational expenses. So low, low to no yield. They're just there to make payments. I think there would be a good case, at least now, to do that on a temporary basis. And again, they'll need congressional approval to do that. And maybe a partial solution to this problem is for Congress to give the FDIC authority when there is instability to institute that program without having to go get congressional approval each time. We had it before during the great financial crisis. We instituted such a program. It was very successful in curbing uninsured run risk at community banks, which is why we put it into effect. And for some reason, Congress decided they didn't want the FDIC doing it again without congressional approval. So I'm not, I think now that would have been a nice tool for the FDIC to have. And Congress, I would encourage Congress to think about just going ahead and giving them that authority now in case they need to use it. But anyway, I think that that might be a halfway house in terms of the, the challenge that we're talking about. Final question to you. Given what the the government has done and the FDIC has done, what do you think the medium term outlook is for banks? Well, again, I think most banks are just fine. Now, when rates go up, that that can be a benefit to banks that or their traditional banks that take deposits and make loans and don't have a lot of you know large securities portfolios. So there's some benefits to rising interest rates. I don't want people to think this because interest rates rise, it puts all banks into trouble. Some the traditional lenders have actually benefited from it. They are starting to have to pay more on their deposits. I'm glad about that. <laughs> I'm happy as a depositor and I'm happy for Main Street America to get more money on their deposits. So that is going to compress the profit margin they get, uh, you know, between what they have to pay on deposits and what they what they yield on their investments and loans. But I still think, um, you know, and we may go into a recession. I really hope we don't. Uh, and they need to be prepared for that. So there are going to be challenges ahead. But I, I do think the banks, for the most part, uh, they're not all perfect, but most of them are well-regulated and well-supervised. And people should, you know, there's a lot of data out there if you want to take a look. If you're a sophisticated uh, uninsured depositor, take a look and see how your bank holds up. I think most you'll find that most of them are, are just fine. And uh, again, we just need to not uh, not lose our heads. Uh, frankly, I worry more, more about the non-bank sector. Uh, these private funds have grown, you know, dramatically uh, with because uh, they use they use leverage. They, you know, they feed on leverage. So with credit so cheap for so long, they've really gotten big. And there's not a lot of transparency about what kind of risks they're taking and how uh, these uh, interest rates are impacting them now. So I think stay tuned on the non-bank sector. But again, for the regulated sector, people keep their heads. I think we'll be just fine. Well, I want to thank you for using the title of the show in your final answer. Stay tuned. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Sheila Baer, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for uh, your insight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. 
Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.